Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hey, guys. I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chew Manchu and our producer, Angela Zane. Say hi, y'all. Hey, everyone. Our guest tonight, Dr. Jamie Robinson and Dr. Mark Troyer, discuss special considerations in refugee health. But before we get to content, hey, Chris, why don't you remind us about the show? Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We're going to have a really great conversation with our guests, such as Jamie Robinson and Mark Troyer. Jamie Robinson is a family medicine physician at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. She focuses on women's health and refugee and immigrant health and is passionate about breaking down barriers for these populations who have had historically low access to adequate health care. In her personal life, she's a proud daughter, sister, and aunt of four. You can catch her listening to music, doing arts and crafts, walking, playing violin, exercising, or watching Netflix. Mark Troyer is a clinician educator at The Ohio State College of Medicine. As a primary care provider, he cares for predominantly refugee and medically underserved communities in Columbus. He teaches courses in service learning and refugee health. His scholarship is directed towards diabetes and Bhutanese refugees and developing global health curricula. Mark is a dedicated husband and father of three young children. When he's not cleaning up toys, he enjoys cycling and gardening. We're super excited for these two guests to teach us about definitions of immigration terms, best practices and interpretation, and how to approach refugee patients. I think everyone's going to love this discussion. I don't have a pun. (laughs) Easy enough. Dr. Robinson, Dr. Troyer, welcome to the Cribsiders. Yay! Yay, thank you. Um, We're we're very appreciative to have you. Uh, Thanks for coming on to the show. We're really excited to to talk about refugee health, an important topic. But before we get into content, would love to know about each of you a little bit more. And so I'd like to ask if you would describe yourself in a one-liner and maybe share something that you're interested in outside of medicine. Um, And Jamie, do you mind mind going first? Yeah, so I am Jamie Robinson. I'm a family physician in Columbus, Ohio. I really enjoy um, understanding the um, socio-political climates that my patients come from and uh, treating their uh, diseases kind of based on that. And outside of medicine, I love to cook. Excellent. Yeah, yeah thank you for sharing that, Jamie. Um, and uh, Mark, how about yourself? Um, My name is Mark Troyer. I'm a primary care doctor. About half of the time that I spend working, I I take care of my own patients. And the other half I spend uh, teaching medical students and residents about global health and uh, refugee and immigrant care. What do I like to do outside of medicine? Uh, I mean, I'm a father of three young kids, so (laughs) I like to wrangle my children and clean up their toys. Excellent. So my favorite question is, um, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? And we'll, let's start with Mark this time. I never fail. So I'm, I can't relate to this question. Um, <laughs> but actually, so I, I was thinking about this question. One of my most meaningful failures actually, I think, happened in refugee care. I was a resident. I was taking care of a number of refugees just as a circumstance, as a coincidence. And I was trying to perform a pap smear on a recently resettled refugee with the supervision of an attending. 
using a telephone interpreter and trying to cross that linguistic and cultural barrier with an invasive and uncomfortable exam um, did not go well in that particular circumstance. And I have a lot of negative memories about it. I can't imagine the memories that she had, but that I think was humbling and also helped me to want to be better. Excellent. Thank you for that. Jamie? Uh, Does it have to be related to my recent medical career? Oh, okay. It can be personal even. There's no no limitations. Okay. So I took a gap year after undergrad and I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew that I wanted to take a year off. And I had applied for like several jobs and programs and I really wanted to do this like outreach program um, in Cleveland, which is where I'm from. And I didn't get it. And I was really upset and sad about it. And I was like, what am I going to do? And then like three or four months later, I got this really amazing opportunity to do research at the Case Western Reserve School of Nursing. And we did a research project all about getting patients engaged and being their own advocates in healthcare and how they can prepare for their visits with their doctor and kind of be more engaged and kind of taking more ownership of their healthcare. So it was something that was, you know, it just kind of like happened. But I was really like devastated that I didn't get this volunteer job that like everyone got. And it turned out to be an amazing experience. So. I appreciate you sharing that because I feel like one of my favorite parts of that question is people sharing that we have all like not gotten something that we want. And I feel like people don't always talk about it. And so this is how the imposter syndrome just continues to to continue going on at all levels. And so it's always nice and encouraging for people to kind of share uh, that this is just part of the path and that new doors open. And just getting sirens. <laughs> I live right next to a hospital, actually. <laughs> when we moved in, the well, before we moved in, the realtor was like, oh, there's no ambulances ever. Don't worry about it. So. <laughs> when, I, when I lived in Chicago, I was in Hyde Park, and we were, you know, I was on the same street as the University of Chicago Hospital, and we would hear a helicopter all the time. It was just a constant. All right. As a learner, I really want to hear the answer to this question. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever received, either as a learner yourself, as a teacher, um, in your career thus far? And Jamie, why don't we start with you? Um, let's see. It's a very good question. I think that when I had some more seasoned attendings tell me to have mentors for kind of different pieces of you, like kind of staying away from this notion that you need a mentor, like only one mentor, um, but having like a mentor, like because, you know, you're going to have multiple interests. So having maybe if you're a woman in medicine, maybe you have a mentor that's not in the same field, but she's a female physician and she understands you. And then maybe having another mentor has the same research interest as you or, you know, same kind of niche or specialization. So not just kind of feeling like you're, you know, narrowed down to one person, but kind of hearing multiple perspectives. I remember going to an SGYM conference meeting on something just like that. And it, it was creating your mentorship team, like your board of directors. And it was uh, uh, very insightful and, and career changing, I think. And Mark, how about you? Best piece of advice? Uh, the best piece of advice I got was from my brother. Uh, um, he's the he's much smarter than me. Um, and he told me that from his experience looking at careers, don't go do the best, hardest, most prestigious thing you can do just because it's the best, 
hardest, most prestigious thing you can do. Um, but rather, he taught me about how to think about how to establish a work-life integration and how to make those choices, even if they're not your hardest or, or most prestigious professional decision, to make the ones that are actually true to who you are as a person. Oh, I absolutely love that one. That's that's great. Should we jump into the case now? Let's, I appreciate let's you guys. All right. Um, our first case comes from a patient that you're seeing in your clinic. Her name is Maya, and she's 16. She's here with her parent, and both of whom immigrated here recently. Um, in fact, they're refugees, and they were recently resettled by the local agency. So for folks who don't work with migrant populations, I think there can be a lot of terms that are really overwhelming and seem the same, and um, you know, there's obviously lots of nuance involved. So maybe if, Mark, you could help us define some terms like refugee, asylum seeker, unaccompanied minors, all the different types of visas, like a sanctuary city, or any other terms you think are important. Yeah, I think it's also made harder by a lot of different people with different political agendas. Um, so if I'm going to gripe about one thing, I think that people talk about refugees and undocumented immigrants in the same sentence, oftentimes, and will logically confuse them. So I think it's worth going over some terms. Refugees are people who are fleeing their own country because they're being persecuted, in short, because of a group that they're part of. So they may be persecuted because of race, because of religion, nationality, political opinion, um, being part of a particular social group. And so that that leads to what the UN calls a well-founded fear of persecution. And so they're, they're fleeing or being displaced from their country because of that. Um, refugees prior to being resettled oftentimes have to spend long periods of time in refugee camps that may be adjacent to the place that they were displaced. So for instance, if you're thinking about Syrian refugees, then most of the Syrian refugees are residing in countries that are all around neighboring countries. But they may be there for 10, 15 years while they're awaiting resettlement. These are resettled refugees. So what happens during that time? They're getting extensive background checks. They're getting interviewed about their reasons for persecution from somewhat cynical immigration agents. And they have to go through a series of health and security clearances before they're even allowed to come into the country. So ironically, we talk about refugees and undocumented immigrants in the same sentence, but refugees are often the most highly vetted immigrants in our system. Not only do they have to go through the regular immigration vetting, but they go through additional vetting to prove that well-founded fear of persecution. You asked about asylees or asylum seekers. So I had talked about how you have to go through all these security checks, and then you get the visa, the permission to enter the country, and you can get on a plane and come to the US. So you already come with your refugee status in hand. Asylees have, they meet all the same criteria as refugees. They have a well-founded fear of persecution and everything like that. They just got the timeline wrong. So asylees are often coming to a country seeking refuge, and their first contact is not when they're making all these applications from abroad. Their first contact is right there at the port of entry. So we hear a lot about asylees coming from the southern border because 
those are people who are fleeing persecution, not staying in a country like Turkey while their their applications are going through. They're applying right when they show up at the border. I think. Well, I just want to add. I, I think this was a, a great point, Mark. Is I will also say one of the refugee families that we uh, I took care of on their first visit had spent. Uh, it was a 16 year old, just like this, like Maya, who didn't even remember the country from which she was fleeing. She had spent 15 years in the refugee camp, and so the the host the social history of saying that they are a Burmese refugee is very confusing when some of them have spent um, not enough time in the country to even have memories of that country. Yeah. And so one of the refugee groups that I have taken care of the most historically is actually Bhutanese refugees. And Dr. Robinson, Jamie is is also familiar with this group. And in many of the places in the United States where we take care of Bhutanese refugees, we get them mixed up because we say they're Nepali. That's because they're ethnically Nepali, but they're citizens of Bhutan that got kicked out of Bhutan and then lived in refugee camps in Nepal. Are you confused yet? Because it's confusing. And those people, their their ethnic and their political identities get smeared kind of all over the place. And I think that's very typical of the refugee experience. And can I maybe ask a follow-up too? You mentioned the very specific categories of people who qualify as a refugee or who qualify as um, an asylee if they're granted. Can you, are there specific groups? Does that include, for example, LGBTQ communities? Does that involve political parties? And maybe Jamie, is that something that uh, you, you should speak to? Yes, yes, it, it does. So um, I actually um, took care um, of a, a female patient who was fleeing a um, West African country um, and seeking asylum because she identified as LGBT. And it was illegal in that country to be LGBT. And she had been um, attacked by a local Muslim group that found out that she identified as such. Um, and so she did come to the United States seeking asylum just for that. And successfully, people are, are able to successfully get asylum? Is that? That part I don't know. So I did her uh, forensic evaluation to, you know, in support of that. But, um, you know, ultimately it's up to the government and I'm not sure what the rates of success are. And so, Jamie, maybe um, could I ask you also, uh, we talked about, as Mark mentioned, the uh, health assessments that refugees are going through before coming to the United States. Um, could you talk a little bit about what is the screening that occurs before individuals leave um, or what's the, the general workup before they come into a, a clinic that we might see them, where we might yeah. see them? So overseas, each patient is um, evaluated by someone called a panel physician. The panel physician does kind of a standard workup for medical problems and then kind of adds certain things based on the country of origin or where they are. So each patient, they have like a full kind of like history and physical. They screen for tuberculosis, but just active tuberculosis. So if you're over age 15, they just do a chest x-ray. Younger than that, I think they usually just do screening questions and sometimes they'll do a quantiferin gold or the tubercul um, tuberculin skin test. They, um, and again, depending on age, they'll screen for hepatitis B, for um, syphilis and gonorrhea, sometimes chlamydia. Yeah, those are the biggest ones. They will um, note like if, you know, children are malnourished or obese, 
Um, they will put blood pressures in there, um, a quick like vision screening exam. Um, and then they usually will do some sort of presumptive treatment. And like depending on the country, they might do a presumptive treatment with coartum for malaria, or they'll do a presumptive treatment for um, stool, like infectious um, colitis. Soil like transmitted helmets. Helmets, yeah. So they'll give like just a dose of albendazole. Or um, if they're in a place where there's um, schistosomiasis that's pretty endemic, they'll give a course of praziquantel. So those are kind of the the big ones. And depending on the vaccine availability, they'll give um, like an MMR or polio vaccine, um, sometimes hepatitis B. Now, now, it seems like there are so many different things based on the country of origin that they're coming from. Like as a primary care physician, you know, I've definitely had some refugee families come see me and sometimes they come in with like a stack of paperwork that they don't even know is in there. Sometimes they come with absolutely nothing. Sometimes, uh, you know, we, we were talking before here that some patients may go come through some sort of intake um, and I can see that in my EMR. What are the types of things that we might see these patients come in with to present to us to, to, with their documentation? Is, is this common to have such a difference in documentation, Mark? Uh, yeah, I think that a lot of times the documentation's there and and accessible, but usually it requires a little bit of detective work to find out which health department is following their case or which immigration physician followed their case. So I think for a lot of people, the context is hard because they're not quite as familiar as like what the routine screenings and when they happen are. So if we have you're a refugee who is is getting their refugee status before, um, traveling to the U.S., then we, or actually, if we generalize this to anybody who's doing a planned immigration, documented immigration to the United States, they all, as part of their visa requirement, their entry requirement, they have to do a panel physician exam, which is the type of exam that Jamie was describing before they travel to the United States. Oftentimes, that's a really difficult form for us to get access to if we're not connected to the public health infrastructure or the health departments. The second exam is one that usually has to happen depending on rules and backlogs and other things like that. The goal is to get it done within 90 days of arrival to the United States. And that's done by a physician who at least has been vetted with the the immigration services the main requirement is this that you've been a physician for 4 years and that you sign up but all of the instructions for how to go about these screenings are done with the guidance of the CDC so if you ever not sure you can look at uh, CDC guidance on this and then the other thing is to if you can find out where they arrived first, if they came into Connecticut or Washington or other things like that, you may be able to gain some access from that county's health department if they pick up the phone. I'll say our clinic does have these these 90-day initial health assessments that I mentioned and do a lot of the things that, that Jamie mentioned. And I'm curious, Jamie, there are two things that really stuck out for when I'm seeing some of these patients. One, you mentioned the, the helminths. Um, do you typically see people getting ova and parasites from the stool times three? Is that that is something that we classically do? And I'm curious if you guys have strong opinions about it, because I do now and I'll share why. Um, 
stool samples are have always been a barrier, I think, and then specifically in this population, if they have issues with like transportation and kind of navigating the healthcare system and actually kind of showing up, grabbing a stool sample can be difficult. So actually part of the CDC guidelines um, when patients are um, scheduled for their 90-day resettlement or intake physical, if they weren't treated overseas, you can actually just do presumptive treatment. So if they had never, if you know that they're coming from a place that's um, endemic with some of those parasites and they have symptoms, you can empirically treat them. But otherwise, yes, you, you know, you can do the stool samples. But there are some, I have seen recently actually in some of the Afghans, there was a lot of actually non-pathogenic parasites that came out in the stool. Um, and I had to look it up on the CDC and they, you know, said you don't really actually have to treat it. They're non-pathogenic. It's almost just kind of like regular fecal um, flora. Well, I, I wish you were with me, Jamie, because I, I got fooled. You're smarter than I am. And I was covering for our refugee expert, Dr. Matthew Lawrence, who is uh, an incredible advocate and, and clinician here, and was seeing one of his patients who had a positive ova and parasite with three different positive species listed. It, it had a red flag and was yellow. Uh, so I obviously told them we are going to treat. Um, and then after looking up each one individually, all of them were non-pathogenic, clinically insignificant medications. Though we retreated with albendazole, which is something else you can do. So we kind of did it as a presumptive positive that no one felt too worrisome. But he, he talks about how these, these routine ova and parasites are often finding non-pathogenic. And especially if you're going to prophylactically treat um, they might not be that useful. A lot of reports that that I get is that right before a refugees will travel, they just will like pop an albendazole right before they come to the United States because it's more of like a burden thing. Like it's a, it it's the burden of disease, and we assume that when they get to the United States, that burden does not increase. And so, if you can zap the existing flora, um, parasites, you know, along the way, then a lot of times you're lowering that burden. Do you think that's fair, Jamie? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my next question is um, more topical, you know, with COVID-19 and, and we're talking about infectious diseases that we might have to look at for patients when they're screened. Um, I think, Jamie, you said you more recently, you, you had up until recently been doing a lot of some intake. How does COVID-19 how has that affected refugees and um, and how this process has, has moved on in the last two years? Yeah, so um, you know, it's been greatly affected. So um, first I'll say there's uh, certain what we call inadmissible conditions. So patients can't have um, any sort of physical or mental disorder, substance use disorder, active TB, syphilis, gonorrhea, leprosy or COVID-19 um, active to be able to travel. So if they have any of those diseases, they have to wait and get treatment, um, and then they can actually fly um, and be resettled. And so, you know, when they are testing all um, of uh, our patients abroad to make sure that they do not have COVID-19, and so it can kind of delay their arrival here. And then in the beginning of the pandemic in April through May, they had actually stopped all refugee um, resettlement. And so, you know, as um, Mark was talking about, you know, this is a long process for these people. Some people have been waiting 
for years, you know, to come to the U.S. Um, but, you know, even if they were in a refugee camp, they were unable, you know, to, to come here because they had stopped all, um, you know, transnational flights. Um, and so it was just kind of delaying this process even more for people. Um, and then recently with uh, the Afghan parolees, they're technically not considered refugees. They had, when they were um, evacuated out of Afghanistan in, I think that was August um, of 2021, that um, they were kind of put in um, these like temporary housing in these lily pad cities um, across the globe. And then in the U.S., we're coming to military bases to kind of be processed and there was some COVID-19 transmission there as well. And so they had built like tents and things for um, families who had to quarantine. And sorry, can you, uh, lily pad cities, that's not something I'm familiar with. So the um, the protocol Operation Allies Welcome, basically the U.S. took, I think it was a month that our um, President Joe Biden had wanted all of the either U.S. citizens or the Afghan people who had worked with any of the U.S. troops, um, because those people would be at risk of persecution or death if the Taliban had found out they were working with the U.S. So they had to quickly get out of Afghanistan. And so because they couldn't all come to the U.S., they had these certain countries. I know like Qatar was one. Um, Italy, I think, was one of the countries. And the people kind of had to fly there first and stayed for a little bit until they were able to come to the U.S. So all of that work that we were talking about panel physicians doing overseas, that wasn't in place because these people had to leave like now. And so they had to do all that processing in the quote unquote lily pad cities or countries. Um, and then here in some of the military bases in the US is where they did all that processing. Um, hopping from lily pad to lily pad, I got it. Yeah, Jamie, I think I heard you say that um, that they they're defined as Afghan parolees because they aren't refugees. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. So another um, designation other than refugee is special immigrant visas. And so those special immigrant um, visas were usually people like from Afghanistan who worked with um, the U.S. as either like interpreters or with the military. And so they were able to kind of come to the United States, not on like a refugee status, but just like a special visa status. So kind of this designation of parolee, they're not refugees, meaning I don't think that their path to citizenship is the same. And they don't necessarily have to have some of these health screenings in order to get their green card. But a special designation of people who have a prior relationship with the U.S. government who are allowed to kind of come here, right? So that they've kind of always had like a special relationship because of our um, ongoing conflict in Afghanistan. People who had worked with the U.S. troops in Afghanistan have kind of always been able to come here a bit easily on a special immigrant visa. Um, and so they designated them parolees, which is kind of like an in-between term, I think. And they actually were even debating whether they were going to give them the same benefits. So refugees, when they come, they all get like Medicaid. They also get, you know, a certain um, stipend for living and things. They do have to pay it back, but they are still kind of loaned that. And so they were actually even wondering if they were going to give um, this group of Afghani people those benefits 
because they were not refugees. Um, thankfully, they did <laughs> because it would have been a mess for them to not have health insurance. But it was just another political designation. I'll say for our refugee population, getting that Medicaid card, there's always a, a few days delay. And there, that's always a, sometimes a barrier, especially for people with health care issues. One thing that I found, and Mark, maybe I'll turn this one to you because it's not just the initial evaluation, but the vaccinations is a big part of the refugee care. And I feel like a lot of times it's the it's almost a vaccination clinic. Is there a general approach to make sure someone's fully vaccinated or are you doing titers? I had a patient who I le- who taught me that she needed a flu shot in order to qualify for her green card application. It just seems like vaccinations are such a core foundation of refugee health. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that we take for granted how much uh, we've been vaccinated by the time we, we become adults in the United States. And oftentimes those vaccinations are occurring in non-U.S. countries, but the record keeping is not. And so uh, refugee or no, a lot of people living in resource poor countries may actually be double vaccinated or triple vaccinated against certain things only because it's easier for them to give empiric vaccination to all the kids in first grade and all the kids in third grade, rather than trying to keep track of who's got what vaccine and when. Unfortunately, we can't take that for granted, according to the immigration protocols. And so to answer your question directly, I I kind of use some clinical judgment on which things I will test and which things I will just empirically vaccinate. I think the bent is more toward empirically vaccinating. But if you do have access to some of that information from those two intake exams, the one that happens before travel and the one that happens after travel, they also perform a lot of vaccinations. So I've been able to avoid maybe half of excess vaccines by somehow getting access to that information. Um, the other ones that I will often check titers on, I don't know if Jamie does this the same as me, but I will do a titer for varicella. I'll do a, a titer for measles, mumps, and rubella. That's Otherwise, I'll usually um, empirically vaccinate. So I have the... Um, so to get the green card, there are... 16 vaccines that um, you have to um, be immunized against, or 16 diseases, I'm sorry, you have to be immunized against. And these are um, partly by age. So mumps, measles, rubella, polio, tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, haemophilus influenza type B, rotavirus, hep A, hep B, meningococcal disease, varicella, pneumococcal pneumonia, influenza, and then COVID-19 was actually recently just added. So if you come to the U.S. as a refugee, when you go to get your green card, which is usually a year after you arrive, you have to be, um, you have to show immunity to those things either by vaccination or through um, the, the titers. So, so good learning point for my patient. So <laughs> yeah, that's, so that's, a, that's why it turns into a vaccine clinic because they wow. need it for their green card. It just just seems like all if I think of all the pediatric vaccines that I that I get all my kids vaccinated all the way up to college, you know, and plus the men B and stuff like that. If you hit all those, 
then you're good. But otherwise, you have to basically make up their vaccination schedule for that. So, excellent. Just excellent. in a couple months. That's the other thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, really? try, to, try to get it all done real fast. Yeah. But, I mean, mm-hmm. there's some you can't. Um, right, and right. so, a lot of times, in order to get the visa to come into the United States, they have to show proof that they started the series. And then, for your next step, then you show that you're you know, going further into it. And then when, when Jamie talked about the green card, so the visa is permission to come in. So you get like an immigrant visa or a refugee visa that's permission to come in, but it's got kind of a timeline on it that it only lasts for so long. Then a green card is a permanent residence permit. So that's permission to stay indefinitely. And that's hard to get. And that's the one that you have to do all these other steps in order to get that green card that will allow for permanent residence. And there's some additional permissions that come along with uh, permanent resident status as well. And so let's say we have a patient where we're confident about their vaccine records. We've treated them with an extra dose of albendazole for their non-pathological ova and parasites. How would people with more expertise such as yourselves approach this first primary care visit. Let's say this is after the initial health assessment. They're going to be a part of your primary care panel. What are the important things to be focusing on? Is it is it really just focused on a social history? Is it mental health screening? Is it something where you're going to be seeing the family every month? How do you approach a new patient in your clinic who's a recently resettled refugee? And maybe Jamie will let you start with this one. Yeah, so I usually give them a welcome <laughs> to the United States to let them know that they are in a place where someone is happy to see them. Um, I try to give them a little bit of a background on like the US healthcare system, basically by saying things like we're going to have appointments that need to be scheduled, that sometimes I may ask you to come in when you're even when you're feeling well, just to check in on things because maybe the idea of a preventative visit, especially well-child visits, may not necessarily be um, well-established where they're coming from. So kind of talking about that. I work at a resident clinic, so I try to, you know, tell them that, you know, most of the time you're going to see me, but you might be able to, you know, see some other physicians, but we all work together. I look through a lot of records. I look through a lot of records. I will spend time just you know, adding things to the chart or scanning things and just kind of making things nice and pretty and making sure that it's everything from overseas, if they have it, is in the chart. Um, I do lots of mental health screenings. Um, Some of the or one of the local resettlement agencies that I work with kind of often have discussed that, you know, when these people first come, because they've been waiting so long, they're actually very happy. Um, And it isn't until maybe like a year or so that maybe that honeymoon period starts to kind of fade um, and people, the parents might have issues with finding work, um, finding childcare. Sometimes the kids um, get put in kind of like depending on their education, like maybe they're in a grade, but the other kids in their grade are actually not even the same age as them because of the the uh, education gap of where they come from. So I try to follow up with people more frequently when they first come because they're going to have a lot of needs and then kind of spacing it out from there. But absolutely a focus on adjustment, a focus on vaccines, a focus on contraception, um, and a, a focus on mental health. 
So one question I have about mental health is I, I remember a couple of years ago, Mark actually gave, uh, I think I was sneaking in on one of the resident lectures that he was giving and he was talking about, you know, cultural differences and how different mental illnesses are perceived that, you know, sometimes we somaticize differently in different cultures. And I'm, I'm thinking about the mental health screening and, you know, I think, you know, if I have just an, a normal person who's, you know, born here in the U.S., if I do a PHQ-9 or PHQ-2, you know, that seems for me that I, I feel comfortable that that's, I've done a pretty decent screening on them. It, are there other clues or other things that we should be aware of based on people's different backgrounds and lived experiences that we have to worry about? And I'll, I'll, I'll send this to Mark since he, he did that, the talk. Yeah, so... I think the first thing that's worth recognizing is that the PHQ-9 and some other standard screeners have actually been translated correctly into other languages. However, you shouldn't be doing it without, <laughs> you shouldn't do it without a grown-up. Um, so what I mean by that is that having the help of a trained medical interpreter during interviews like this is critically important, even if you're using a form that's in the patient's preferred language. There's going to be cultural differences in the descriptions of different symptoms, um, and interpreters are going to be able to help you to manage not only the language difference, but they can help in limited cases in kind of bridging that cultural gap. The other thing that's specific to refugees is a well-validated trauma and mental health screener called the RH15, which is a is called the Refugee Health Screener. And this is looking for emotional distress generally, but is particularly useful in identifying trauma-associated uh, emotional distress. And it is validated specifically in refugee populations and has the ability to transcend some of those um, issues that you're talking about, Chris. I mean, that's a great resource, especially given the differences in, in cultures and language. I want to follow up on this because I feel like as a pediatrician, a lot of pediatrics is coaching parents, whether it's developmental milestones, nutrition, or how to discipline children. And many of these are very culturally contextual. And I'm curious how you reconcile this type of counseling, whether it's on co-sleeping or things like corporal punishment, while also maintaining a certain level of uh, cultural humility. Sometimes I feel like that can be tough to to balance. What What are your thoughts on that? Maybe Jamie will go to you first, and then Mark would love to hear both of your thoughts on this. Um, I I would honestly say I'm probably not the best person to ask that question. I have not figured out a good way <laughs> to reconcile that. I've run into it a lot, especially with like gender norms and children. You know, you'll have you know uh, patients, not necessarily refugee, but sometimes where the parents have maybe like six or seven kids, and the young um female children are expected to kind of do a lot more housework than maybe some of the male children. And I don't know how to reconcile that because I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, but I end up still giving my same counseling in terms of, you know, positive reinforcement um, as a term of, as a, you know, means of getting a better behavior out of children and kind of just have them tweak it whatever is culturally appropriate for them in terms of what positive reinforcement is, whatever reward 
um, is for them. So you were saying something about making sure that you have a growing up or interpreter there who can maybe sometimes help us bridge some of the cultural barriers that we have. I find um, interpretation using interpreters is, is very difficult in a couple of situations. One, sometimes I feel that I may have a patient who brings a family member in and they refuse a trained interpreter and said, no, I really want my daughter to do this interpretation. How do you talk to them about that? And then two is uh, how do you like, do you talk to the interpreter first and say, hey, or, or will you make a side and be like, can you help me out here? Is there something I'm missing uh, culturally that's going on here? Like, how do you how do you approach that situation? And then lastly is, you know, I, I do have some patients, um, at least I don't know within refugee health, but I definitely have patients who don't speak English who are doing telehealth appointments and how to do telehealth appointments um, well with using an interpreter. I guess to Mark first. So I think that... Most people who are using trained medical interpreters are going to be using some version of a audio interpreter more than anything. Now, there are video interpreters available, but oftentimes it's very similar as the modality to an audio interpreter. And then there are live interpreters, and those are amazing, but there is a just a supply-demand problem there. There's just... we want them all the time and and there aren't enough to go around. And so I think the interpretation skills that I've learned, I think are built on the assumption that I'm working with an interpreter that may not be able to see my actions. But I think that there's a number of different skills that you can use to take control of the encounter. So one of the things that you mentioned was when the patient or their family refuse a trained medical interpreter. And I would say a couple things that you can use to negotiate that is one is instead of asking them whether they want a medical interpreter, you can start with the default that we'd say using an interpreter as as a default position for um, limited English proficiency patients. It takes the stigma away from saying, no, I need an interpreter. So if you create an opt-out situation rather than an opt-in situation, I think that it lowers some of the stigma that may be felt by saying that you need an interpreter. The other thing is to frame it differently. So the interpreter is for the patient, but also the interpreter is for you. And so when a patient says, no, I don't need an interpreter, I have my family member, a lot of times I'll say, that's great, let's do both. I'm going to put the interpreter on the line you can use the family member, but I need this interpreter for me. I need this interpreter to make sure that I'm speaking directly to you, or I need this interpreter to make sure that I'm being clear with you. So it's always kind of a check back on me. And I find that's easier to convince or easier as a, as a method for explaining the true situation, which is that you really need that interpreter to make sure that there's a high quality interpretation there and that you're not putting the patient or their family member in a real conflict of interest scenario where the family member may start off with good intentions, but then get themselves into a situation that they really don't feel comfortable or shouldn't feel comfortable interpreting. So in those cases, a lot of times I will put the interpreter on and I'll say, um, you know, please remain on the line 
um, you don't need to interpret the words that we're saying yet. And so that interpreter is just there as kind of an insurance policy. I, I will sometimes allow the family member to interpret as long as that's their preference, but I've got the trained medical interpreter there. And a lot of times I will fluidly switch between different people. An example of this is when I had a major family meeting about end-of-life care in a patient of mine who had late-stage leukemia. She brought in a whole collection. I mean, there were five or six people in the room in addition to her. And I said, oh, where's the interpreter? And they said, no, we want to interpret for her. And this is a really touchy scenario. You want to be able to speak in your own voice. You don't want the family to have to explain difficult situations to their to their own loved one. And so I kind of put my foot down. And during the encounter, there were different times where sometimes the family was interpreting. And then sometimes I would say, no, I want to say this in my voice. And then I would say, interpreter, please interpret the following. And I would look at the patient and I would say my thing and the interpreter would speak in my voice. So I think there's ways that you can negotiate this that allow the family and the patient their autonomy while still recognizing that there's a risk there and that the way that you can manage that risk is by using a medical interpreter, but you can get a little creative with how you can say yes to both. Jamie, do you have anything to add? I do think in the pediatric population, it's a little bit easier because usually it's the kids that speak English and you usually have an issue with the pediatric patient can understand the provider, but then the parents can't. But the parents need to know everything that's going on because they're the ones making the decisions. So that one, it's it's a little bit easier because you just get the interpreter because usually the, the parent needs <laughs> it. And you're like, well, if mom or dad needs to know what's going on. So we're getting an interpreter. Chris, you didn't mention the other scenario that people complain about which is, I think, the classic story for interpretation. You ask the patient a yes-no question, are you taking metformin or something? And the interpreter says some words, and then the patient talks for about five minutes, and then the interpreter says some more words, and the patient talks, and they go back and forth and back and forth, and then the interpreter says, no, I'm not taking metformin. (laughs) And your entire head explodes, right? Like (laughs) you get so suspicious and angry. And I've had so many residents tell me the same story in a different version. And and I don't know if other people have had that experience or not. All the time. Absolutely. And I feel like my Spanish is pretty terrible, but I can still pick up in a Spanish interpreter. Like that's not exactly what I said. Um, And to your point, my tone of voice is not, it's kind of lost. Yeah. And so, so rest assured, oftentimes, because I've like, I've done the detective work when this happens. Oftentimes, it is actually the interpreter trying to do that cultural interpretation for right. you. And so right. you've asked a question that seems very clear and easy. And the patient gives what may come back as somewhat of a nonsensical answer or something that doesn't match. And so you say, are you taking metformin? And they say, well, it all started when, uh, you know, I got, I got kicked in the knee by somebody else. And, and then they go on and the interpreter will then have to kind of get them back to the story. They'll have to negotiate that. They're doing a lot of work for you usually in those cases. And it just took them that long to get a yes, no answer from the patient. <laughs> 
Although I've, I've had some good interpreters who will say, excuse me, I'm going to clarify with the patient as, so the good interpreters, I think, tell you tell you that when they're happening, but. Yes, yeah, so agree. that's a good skill that they can use. But the point, you're, you're getting to the thing that you can do too, which is that you can gently, non-verbally interrupt the patient and and just say like, he says or she says, and the interpreter will recognize that you just did them a service by slowing down the interpretation. And they'll often do exactly what you said, which is they'll explain like, I'm trying to clarify the answer for you. Uh, please, you know, they're very apologetic oftentimes. Great. So moving on with our case, uh, the next week, you see Maya's younger brother. He's also relatively healthy, but while examining his mouth, you notice that he has some visible caries. Oral health concerns affect a lot of refugee children and probably most likely adults as well. How do you screen for and deal with um, these concerns? And Jamie, we will start with you. So yeah, um, oral health is absolutely um, a, a very big issue um, in the adult and pediatric population of our refugee patients. So I'd say there's a few things that go into play. So it's going to be knowledge about dental health and dental prevention, as well as um, nutrition. So um, depending on where people are coming from, because you know not every person who is a refugee has the same experience. Some people are coming from camps that have lots of medical care and attention. And maybe some people are actually even just, you know, coming from living in an urban city waiting to be resettled. So everyone kind of has a different experience. But what I do know is most of them, a lot of them have never seen a dentist in their life, like never. And so that, you know, if you have a 16-year-old child who's never seen a dentist, They've probably got some caries because they haven't had any deep cleaning. And so part of the resettlement physical is actually doing a dental exam. And we actually do refer people to the dentist who, who need it. Um, and so I kind of just take a look at um, all the gums um, and the buccal mucosa as well, um, just to make sure that everything is healthy. But I will say, you know, I will discuss, I kind of almost will treat it like a well child and, you know, discuss, you know, are you brushing your teeth? But then you also have to put that caveat in there. Are you brushing with fluoride toothpaste? Because maybe they're brushing their teeth, but I don't know what they're using to brush. So making sure they're using... Baking soda. Right. There could be plenty of things. There's um, In some Middle Eastern countries, there's this... Um, it's like a, 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 a twig stem called mishwak. And people use... To, they chew on it to, to brush, which is fine. It does clean the teeth, but it does not have actual fluoride in it, which is the anti-cavity. So I talk about um, brushing um, after every meal or at least twice a day um, and then looking inside the teeth and then talking about nutrition. So, you know, we will often think of some of these populations as being malnourished, being like underweight. But there's also kind of the flip side to that where some of these places are kind of adopting this more Western diet. And so they're actually malnourished in being obese. They're eating um, a lot of like cookies and chips and kind of the, what we call junk food and drinking soda. And so that also will kind of speed up the, the dental decay. Um, then you add on top of that, depending on certain countries, their patterns of tobacco use, um, like the Bhutanese Nepali, there's a lot of chewing tobacco. So kind of all of those things together um, can kind of create a, a problem with oral health for all ages. And then you add on top of it that a lot of dentists, at least where I am, they don't take Medicaid. And Medicaid is the insurance that these people have. 
And then if you happen to find a dentist, a pediatric dentist who takes Medicaid, and then do they have an interpreter? (laughs) Try doing a dental appointment without an interpreter. So there's a a lot of barriers there. Um, You can't send everybody to the children's hospital because they are, you know, probably booked. But it's, it's an absolute barrier. Um, I hope one day that um, there's more incentive for for private dentists to get interpreters and to actually um, take Medicaid and be reimbursed appropriately. Mark, did you have any thoughts on that? I think that one of the general themes that we can take from this is that it takes a team and that oftentimes you need to be using your team of resources. And what I mean by that is the people who know what you don't know. So I rely heavily on caseworkers, social workers, clinical pharmacists, and others to help me in my daily operations. And so um, I don't always know the answer, but I know somebody who does. And using that team-based approach can really help you to serve your refugees better than anything. Much of what we expect refugee healthcare to be is like tropical medicine and a lot of like infectious disease and other things like that. While that may be the case, a lot of what we run into is making sure that we're providing a patient-centered medical home for somebody who has never had significant medical care before they landed at your doorstep. And so kind of creating that network of providers and using that team-based approach is a big skill set for us to use, as well as attending to the trauma that is, it's baked into the definition. I mean, the persecution is is baked into the definition of refugee care. So a lot of times we have to use a team-based approach. Thank you both so much for this. I feel like it's been really valuable hearing you walk us through the nuances and a lot of the very um, frustrating barriers in optimal health care for refugee populations. Um, hopefully our listeners feel the same way and they leave this episode feeling invigorated and they want to network with folks working in refugee health care. Um, if someone wants to get started, you know, what are some avenues you suggest um, or anything you'd like to plug? So there is um, actually a health society called the Society for Refugee Healthcare Providers, um, of which I am a part of and have been for at least the last three years. The Society for Refugee Healthcare Providers um, is actually an organization that composes providers in the U.S., but also providers in Canada who spend a significant amount of time um, providing care to refugees. And so it's very interesting to kind of see what, you know, some of the uh, similar or some of the um, different barriers are in Canada as well in serving this population. And their kind of um, capstone seminar that they do. So the North American Refugee Health Conference will be held in Cleveland, Ohio from June 23rd to June 25th. Um, I believe the day before June 22nd, they are actually even giving a seminar on how to perform forensic evaluations for asylum seekers, which I'm also going to attend. So very cool. Lots of great people there. Every time I go, um, wonderful, wonderful people. Um, and it, it's it's nice because it's not just physician-based. As Mark said, it takes a team. And so when you go, there are social workers, psychologists, people in public health, um, interpreter services. So it's it's a great time. So I guess now we're going to start wrapping up. I guess for each of you, uh, if you can think of a couple of main take-home points for our listeners. That uh, taking care of the refugee population is very rewarding. Um, The 
some of the patients are some of the most grateful patients I've I've ever had. Um, and it's truly remarkable some of the things that these people have gone through um, and their resilience in being able to start their life over in a new country that is different culturally. The language is different. Sometimes the major religions are different and they just keep going. And so I feel like I learn a lot from them as well about being resilient. Um, I think a take home point that I would add is you don't have to do it all at once. So it can feel like you have to do 50 things in one visit. And the honest truth is that you often have 50 visits. So try to do those first steps that we had talked about just identifying the patient's existing network of care, getting access to any of the background information that they can tell you and that you can use to avoid duplicating care, and also looking them in the eye and saying, what do you want to start with? Uh, Oftentimes, it's through these longitudinal relationships that we have that we're able to take the best care of these patients rather than trying to do it all as one transaction. The other thing that I hope that people will take home from this is that there's a lot of different skills that we already have as providers that we can use and apply to refugee healthcare. And there's a lot of skills that you can learn in taking care of refugees, particularly in how to feel confident in working with interpreters and limited English proficiency patients that you can use while taking care of refugees that you can use to take care of patients uh, throughout. Excellent. Thank you so much. You know, I I tell this to my med students and residents all the time. Primary care's superpower is our longitudinal relationships with these patients. So fantastic. Thank you guys so much for spending, um, for giving us this evening uh, to talk about refugee care, especially when it comes to intake and screening. You know, I, I think Angel plans on making um, just refugee health a, a whole series for for the Cribsiders, and um, maybe in the future we'll be able to have you involved if we re- revisit any other topics. That'd be great. That'd be wonderful. I could talk about it all day. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for the time. Really, really appreciate you both. Thank you. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for a weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice change knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Angela Zane, executive producer, Dr. Matt Cruz, and showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur. We'd also like to thank our wonderful social media team. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Angela Zane. And this has been Chris the Chi Manchu. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.